Father, we pray that you would sanctify us from all false motives. We pray that you would put in us that which is holy and true, he who is holy and true. Let your spirit refresh, renew, fill, and refill us. We ask for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on our congregations. Lord, we pray that um, we pray that you would renew our minds, sanctify our hearts to be willing to do your will. And in being willing to do your will, we ask that you would open our eyes to see your glory. For that, to see your glory and to be with you is that reason for which we were created, that we might praise you and enjoy you forever. And of course, that begins here. So we pray that you would comfort and help and heal us in times and seasons of sorrow, and that you would give us a greater and greater abundance of the joy and the peace and the righteousness in the Holy Spirit that is the kingdom of God. Amen. Thank you, Lord. This morning, our message is entitled, The Apostolic Hermeneutic and the Lavish Love of God. A hermeneutic is, hermeneutics is how you study Scripture, right? Or how you interpret Scripture. So, in the Middle Ages, uh, those saints would search the Old and New Testaments, and they would try to find allegorical meaning for the parables, the historical narratives, the, the timeline of the Old Testament. So they would read Jesus' parables, and they'd say, all right, we have to use the allegorical hermeneutic. So everything in this parable correlates to something nowadays. And so, you know, the... Uh, you know, the, the, Jesus explains some of his parables, like the parable of the, the soil, the seed, and the sower. But others that he doesn't explicitly explain, they would take and they would say, all right, this means that, and this means that, and this means that, and this means that. And it got to be kind of elaborate. And oftentimes that resulted in missing the main point of the parable, and parables tend to have one main point. The apostles had a way of reading the scriptures we call the apostolic hermeneutic. And um, here is what it is. The apostolic hermeneutic means treating the Bible as one book, not as a bunch of different books that are to be read separately and not thought of as one story with one storyline and one central figure Christ and his glory in both Old and New Testaments, in both the Jewish scriptures and the New Testament. The apostolic hermeneutic means treating the Bible as one book, written by God, so one author, through many authors, and seeing things in it that you would see in any well-written book. When I say any well-written book, I may be slightly overstating that. Um, who here has studied literature on like you know, for as a career or, or you know, like a, had like a really good high school literature class or college literature classes? That's like seven or eight people. Okay, so I didn't go very far in studying literature, and um, I hope one day to study literature more carefully. But what I've understood over the years is that not every single good story, good classic novel, but almost every single one uses heavily 
these literary techniques. So you don't just have characters that do stuff, and then the stuff reaches a climax, and then it resolves, and then you kind of conclude or leave it hanging maybe in some. Stories, good stories, overwhelmingly um, use repeated symbols. There's a theme that flows through the story. Like in the scriptures, themes like the glory of Christ, the unfaithfulness of his people, the faithfulness of Christ, and so on. And when we learn to read the scriptures with new, these new eyes, the way the apostles read them, they open up to us a wealth of meaning that Christ intended for us to see when we read it, when we read it well, like the apostles did. Now, we're going to look at five spots in Acts chapter 2 uh, and read them, read those uh, five uh, uh, passages and sections with the apostolic hermeneutic and see if we see what we saw before. This will yield for us the main point, that God had been planning for ages to forgive the very ones who crucified his son and to pour out his spirit on them wonderfully and fully and more powerfully than he did with Adam and the other saints in the Old Testament. He did this to make them, to make us his treasured possession, his holy people. He planned to send his son to the very ones who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to them. He planned to pour out the, whole, the promised Holy Spirit to all those who called upon his name. And as Acts chapter 2, it is those in Jerusalem who had just slaughtered the Lamb of God. And in this, the Son of God is mightily exalted. In this is God glorified. In this, sinners like us are converted from the atheistic and idolatrous inclinations of our hearts. When we meet Jesus at the cross and confess our sins to him and leave everything, and I mean everything, to follow, obey, and serve him, as the new called out people of God, called out from every nation to glorify God as the Holy Spirit enables us to continue the work of Jesus in all the world, pouring out our own lives, not to bring condemnation and judgment on the world, but to lay down our lives to bring sinners to repentance. But sometimes we have to forgive each other. The apostolic hermeneutic, to quote Pastor Weiss from two weeks ago, is, is like this. Often, we want to interpret Scripture merely as didactic literalism. That means it says something, like there's a rock, a mountain, a river, there are people, they do stuff, and that's it. And we're supposed to learn from that that that's what happened, and good, I guess I should be like them or not be like them if they did something good or bad. Often we want to read Scripture that way. When often Scripture is historical narrative, that means the history of all the Jewish Scriptures are one narrative. The Holy Spirit is narrating through the writers of the Scripture one storyline with rise and fall and the, the arc 
pointed all through the Old Testament towards the Son of God. Therefore, God premeditated to forgive those he knew who would betray him the most deeply. That was his plan. What a wonderful Savior. And that is our Father. The apostolic hermeneutic means treating the Bible as one book written by God and seeing in it things that you would see in any well-written book. Repeated themes, recognizable patterns, similarity between imagery where one word picture reminds you of another word picture that you saw in a different book. You're supposed to do that when you read the Bible. You're supposed to notice that one word picture in Joshua reminds you of a word picture in Genesis. And we're going to see that right in the beginning of Acts chapter 2. We're going to see how Genesis relates to Acts 2, and it's not a coincidence, and we're not reading into it. We're reading it the way God always intended us to read our Bible. It means seeing motifs where you're reading the story in Genesis, for example, and then, let's say, in the people of Israel in the wilderness, and you think, wait a second, haven't I read this before? There are repeated things that happen to the characters in the Bible again and again. Different people, even the whole nation, goes through something that somebody else in Genesis or earlier on went through. And so, like Israel went out into the wilderness led by the Spirit of God, so Christ, so Christ, the, the undoing of all that Adam did wrong, does on behalf of Israel, going into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, he gets it right, and therefore, he has the power to lead us into the promised land, into victory, into victorious Christian living, which, as we see in the pattern, our pattern and example, Jesus, often means suffering and death and resurrection. So the apostles got it. And from even before the resurrection, they were looking at Jesus in the light of the Jewish scriptures. That happens all through the Bible, including the book of Acts. And by the time you get to Hebrews and Revelation, almost every single word is a quotation from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament. In Revelation, Almost every single word in the whole book, and including word pictures and imagery and symbols, is a quote from the prophets, the Psalms, Daniel, Genesis, the Pentateuch. Almost every single line. Can you then read Revelation and understand it if you haven't spent a lot of time in your Old Testament? It would be impossible. Without both knowing and understanding the scriptures, it's impossible to understand much of Revelation. But so much of the Bible is that way, including the Gospels. You won't understand Jesus much unless you understand the Psalms. So, let's turn to Acts chapter 2 and begin. We're going to read the first 13 verses quickly. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, he had appeared to more than 500 of them, but there were about 120 of them who were there. Hmm. 
And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. So read this with, uh, read this with all of your imagination. Think of a movie where somebody is caught in a tornado. Think of a, a film you've seen, because modern cinema is so good at really taking you there and making you think, like, wow! You know? And we don't read the scripture that way, but you, you, you have to use your full imagination. Okay. The words here, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, don't mean in the fall when the treetops bend and you can hear all the leaves rustling. The, the Greek here means this is like hurricane, tornado, gale force. There's actually, this is a dangerous level of wind. It would have been very, very loud. Like when you're in a storm and you, you're a little disoriented and you can't even like hear each other's voices loud. This is a loud, strong, powerful, think, generous wind. God is breathing the breath of God through this, into this room, into each one of these disciples sitting here, eagerly waiting on him, huddled in fear, but waiting on the Lord in expectation. And that's, that's a pattern for us. God is breathing into them the wind of his breath, his spirit. This is quoting a word picture from Genesis. Genesis. God breathed into man the breath of life, and he became a living being. This is incredibly significant, right? So like Adam, the, God breathed into him his spirit or his breath. In Hebrew, the word is the same, right? And he became a living being. Things were good in the garden for a little while. We don't know how long. And then things went incredibly bad and were in. And, and all of the history of the people of God as God led them out of Egypt, delivered them, protected them, protected Jacob from Laban, and, and protected all of his, protected Joseph in the house of Potiphar and in prison and under Pharaoh. And, and even though uh, his own brothers betrayed him and Satan meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so God is always rescuing, saving, preserving, delivering, and the people within like that very generation or the next generation after seeing signs and wonders in Egypt, as soon as they cross the border into the wilderness, their, their expectation, hope, and trust in the Lord goes, right? And we're supposed to put ourselves into that narrative. And we're supposed to think, am I any better than they? And the answer biblically is no. That's how we're supposed to read the scriptures. Now read yourself into the narrative of Acts chapter 2. God, after, this, after the prophets have promised that the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all flesh for over a period of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, now comes the empowerment to live, though we often fail, this victorious Christian life conquering by the word of, by his blood and the word of our testimony, as it says of us in the book of Revelation, right? Acts chapter 2 is the ultimate, complete giving of his spirit such that, such that we have enough, such that we have in him. 
in the Spirit leading the church and empowering us, leading us into all truth through all the Scriptures. We have everything we need through these very great and precious promises and through the promised Holy Spirit, who is the comforter, helper, legal advocate, defender against our, the accuser of the brother, and our friend. Empowering us and enabling us, filling us and refilling us, as we'll see as we study further through the book of Acts, to, to be who the church was intended to be in every generation that has been and is coming until his return. So in Genesis, reading this with the apostolic hermeneutic, we remember God breathing. So maybe that's a sigh. It's obviously a deliberate breath. Maybe it's a deep breath, but it's not mighty or rushing or even scary or disorienting. The lavish love of God and presence of God is poured out upon his people here and for us in every subsequent generation because it says the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, all generations who are fall off, far off, all those that the Lord has called to himself, and that's us. And this is the word of hope and empowerment that is for our congregation today. Reading on. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. One language to sing his praises was not enough. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Now, they all probably spoke, uh, if not Aramaic, Greek, or Latin. They all could have easily communicated. But the Lord was causing these people to proclaim the mighty deeds of the Lord in all of the languages of the world. This is symbolic for the gospel being destined to go to every tribe and tongue and nation. And therefore, because of your witness, because of your discipling of all nations, and because of our reaching out in evangelism and discipleship and teaching everybody in every community where we are sent all the things that the Lord has taught us, the nations of the world are destined to be converted to Christ. This is the apostolic vision. And through all of the persecutions from the Muslims to the Russians, to the Bolsheviks and communists, to from every, you know, the Ottoman Turks, from all the, all the empires of man that God let, God let rise until he brought them down in judgments as he did the Canaanites. None of these empires of man have been able to squelch or suppress the plan of God for his church. Praise the Lord. Amen. Nothing you are going through Nothing that weighs heavy on your heart, nothing that has been done to you, nor anyone who has betrayed you, nor anything that didn't work the way you were expecting it, can defeat the purpose for God in your life in this very generation. He will, his word will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it out. And now, through this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we will see signs and wonders 
And this also has to be interpreted with the apostolic hermeneutic. Let's read on. Um, how is it that we hear each, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene or Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and visitors from Rome, proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're drunk. They're filled with new wine. They're drinking cheap booze. And here is our text for today, our main text. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. I want to remind us of when we were recently in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus with the disciples on the road to Emmaus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Then he explained to them in beginning with uh, Moses and all the prophets in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus thought that he was the main subject and the main point of the Old Testament. And since his name isn't in the Old Testament, or is it? Joshua. Since uh, the, the themes, the images, even the, the, the characters of the Old Testament, we call them types, represent Christ in the things that, in the way they lived, in the things they went through, they, they foreshadow like a good story. Like, you know, you hear, dun, 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 and you hear that, and you know Darth Vader is coming, right? That's how we do it in our movies. But in the Bible, in great literature, and the Bible is the greatest literature of all, in great literature, the, there are repeated types, people who, they're people other than Christ, but they appear and foreshadow the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. They foreshadow the righteousness of Christ. They foreshadow the success of Christ in contradistinction to our unfaithfulness. They foreshadow the faithfulness of Christ. So Peter gets up and he teaches this crowd about Jesus by quoting the Psalms and a prophet. And if you go back and read those passages, and you don't believe in reading literature like that to see repeated themes, symbols, imagery, motifs, and so on, then you may read Joel chapter 2, which he references, or Psalm 16, or Psalm 110, which he references, and you might think, this is not about Jesus. You're reading into the text. That's wrong. And the apostles had it right. And we need to learn to read the Old Testament that way. You may make some mistakes, and that's okay. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. That's illogical. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. 
Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32 are quoted here. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, hold on. I thought it said here, the last days. And in my Bible class, I learned that the last days happened in the future. Well, the apostles think this is the last days. And under the, influ- under the leading of the Holy Spirit, they're teaching that the last days started then. So I'll adjust my eschatology. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. It had been a long time since any prophet had come in Israel. From Malachi, 400 years up until John the Baptist. And now John the Baptist has come and gone just in the last several years. And now the fulfillment of this promise that they had not seen for 400 years. Finally, finally, another word of prophecy is given because Jesus is the prophet. And he's not the end of all prophecy. He's the center, the source, and the beginning of it. Therefore, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. This is a quote from Genesis. It's not quoting a verse in quotation marks. It's quoting a word picture from Genesis. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall be, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So think about blood and darkness and smoke. It sounds bad. That is bad. That's good interpretation, right? But... So, so there's this coming of the Lord, there's this day of the Lord, there's this great and awesome or fearful day of the Lord, and even as he's coming in judgment, he's coming in mercy, and everyone who looks to the Son of Man lifted up shall be saved. What a wonderful Savior. Even when they've stoned all the prophets and they've killed the Son, even on that generation, Right before, right before God brings the Roman armies to surround Jerusalem and to tear what, every stone off another, pulling apart the stones of the temple that the historian Josephus records for us, even before his great and awesome judgment, this day of the Lord, this coming in wrath upon uh, Israel, before that, before that generation has passed right here in in the early 30s A.D., you have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Jesus coming not, not with a sword to terrify and destroy those who, destroyed the, who slaughtered the Lamb of God, but Jesus coming in the fullness of himself, the wrath at the end of that generation, before that generation passed away, and the mercy on these, on everyone who called upon his name. This is a wonderful Savior. 
when it says, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Remember, remember your reading of Genesis. Remember Joseph's dream. Remember Joseph saying, I had a dream and I saw the sun and the moon and 11 stars and all of them bowed down to me. And his brothers knew right away, you're talking about mom and dad and us. This is, this is like mom and dad here, not your mom and dad. This is like the, the, the heads, the elders, the rulers of the Jewish people. They're the sun and the moon. Like, like Jesus said, your eyes will be darkened. You'll be ever seeing but never understanding. He proclaimed his woes and his judgment upon the rulers and the elder of, elders of the people. And therefore, upon the sun and the moon, the, the elders and the rulers of the Jewish people of that day, those who rejected him, their eyes were kept in darkness, unable to see. It was the judgment of the Lord upon them. But to others, to those who least deserved it, mercy and enlightenment and the opening of the eyes that were blind. This is how Jesus comes when he comes. And we want to be praying for Jesus to send more of his spirit. He is everywhere, but there can be more manifest presence of his spirit. And this is our prayer for our congregation and for every, every congregation in the world. He comes in mercy and in judgment. And here in Acts 2, the judgment is delayed and the mercy is for today. So he's saying in his sermon, don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation, right? So you see the repeated imagery. Reading this quote from Joel 2, the apostle Peter is saying that God used this symbol in Genesis. God used this symbol in Joel and this is the fulfillment of that word picture. It's the apostolic hermeneutic. It's reading the whole storyline of the Bible as one book and understanding that God put that meaning there in the first place. Although in Genesis, they didn't know it was talking about AD 30 or 33. It hadn't happened yet. Some things weren't revealed. The Holy Spirit comes to open our eyes to the meaning of the Scripture and to help us to understand the foreordained plan of God. Peter continued, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. None of this was a surprise to God. He had planned it. He had planned that those who wanted to kill him would be the first to be offered mercy. And that's what's in God's heart towards you. And that's the message of our gospel that we take to the world. This Jesus delivered up because the soldiers were too strong and Judas's uh, sneaky betrayal happened at night and they only had one sword and they couldn't avoid it. No, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's, he's saying, you are those who, after receiving him into Jerusalem with 
hosannas and shouts of praises. You, many of you, were there in that crowd shouting, crucify him. And because of your word, he was crucified by these lawless elders and Pharisees, leaders of the people who ganged up on him, and the Roman soldiers. It was because of you, he says. When we read this, read yourselves into that narrative and think to yourself, am I any better than they? And when the Holy Spirit opens our eyes to be honest with ourselves, the answer is, of course not. This Jesus, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Because logically speaking, if Jesus is the author of life, then he can't die, or if he does die, it'll be a temporary death, and he'll willingly die, and then he'll rise from the dead. Like it's philosophy, guys, duh. No, that's not how he makes his point. He makes his point by arguing from thinking of the whole scripture as a storyline with repeated themes, imageries, repeated motifs or mini storylines that echo one another down through the corridors of the scripture and point to Christ himself and to the people of God unified with him. Christ, the rock of Daniel, striking the statues of the kingdoms of men and shattering the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Christ, the rock, not cut out with human hands and his people with him, fully one with him, growing until we with Christ become a mountain that fills the whole earth. And in the prophets, all the nations of the earth streaming to this holy mountain, repeated themes, symbols, imagery, motifs, all pointing to the foreordained plan of God to save those who crucified his son. And when we read ourselves into the story, not that we were there or that we're that we're of special importance or, some, or we're the center of the universe, but we should think to ourselves, am I any better than they? I need this salvation just the same. And this is how we pray. And so David takes his hearers to the Psalms. He takes them to Psalm 16. I have been reading Psalm 16 um, often for some weeks, and uh, it has become very precious to me. And I think it was very precious, too, to Peter. I think he'd read it hundreds and hundreds of times. And you also need to read the Psalms again and again and again. Let your Bible be open on your nightstand. Read, it at, read them at night. Read them in the morning. Play them on your phone. You need to have the Psalms, the prophets, the Pentateuch in your mind and in your heart because Unless the scripture is here and here, how will the Holy Spirit guide you into all truth, like he said to his disciples? Because his word is truth. We need to become more people of the scriptures and cry out to God every day, open or often, open my mind also to understand the scriptures. And so Peter recognizes Christ in Psalm 16 which if you didn't believe in the apostolic hermeneutic, the storyline of the Bible, you might just say, oh, that's a cool psalm of David. Peter says, David says concerning him, that is Jesus, 
David writes about Jesus. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your, with your presence. In great literature, double meaning is okay. It's not reading too much into the text. You have the immediate meaning of what's written in the text, and then you have that which it foreshadows, or he whom it foreshadows. And both are true meanings of the text. David really did write this about himself. He was really hoping to be resurrection, resurrected. He was hoping that his body wouldn't be left in, in the grave. He really anticipated being made full of gladness forever in the presence of Christ, like it says in Psalm 23, in the last verse. But Peter understood through the Holy Spirit that he was prophetically, simultaneously writing about Christ, and more about Christ than about himself, for only Christ can fully fulfill this scripture. And he explains, brothers, he's kind of, kind of being a little tongue-in-cheek here, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, remember when he lived about the year 1000 roughly, right? This is like AD, this is a little over a thousand years later. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. It's like, I, we're confident of that too, Peter. And his tomb is with us to this day. So therefore, how then could David be talking about himself, Peter argues, when he writes, you will not abandon my soul to Hades, you could say, well, he wasn't abandoned to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. So David's body was long since decayed, corrupted in the grave. And his tomb was with them to that day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne... He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. When in the scriptures does it say that Christ who died, that his body decayed? It says he was taken down from the cross, dead, pierced, the water, the pericardial fluid, and the pulmonary edema, in his, between the layers of the lining of his lungs, flowed out water and blood when that spearman pierced him, right? He was dead, dead. They took him down, wrapped him, and buried him. But where do we see in the Scripture the decay of the body of Christ? We see the death, but we see neither abandonment nor decay. Amen. This Jesus God raised up, and of that, we all are witnesses. 
being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens. Can I get an amen or a respectful duh? David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says. Now he quotes Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Of course, even the Pharisees were puzzled by this one, right? As Jesus questioned them. David wrote, of the Christ who was to come. Psalm 110 is a kingly psalm. It's a psalm that says there's this king, and then there's Yahweh. And it's a Trinitarian psalm in that it teaches the deity of both Christ and the Father in the Old Testament. And it teaches that this king is told by the king to sit at my right hand, which means come up here. It means ascend into heaven, right? Did David ascend into heaven and was he seated at the right hand of God? No. But of the Christ he spoke in Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. It was the foreordained plan of God written through the text of the Scriptures all through the Old Testament, not just in these, the more explicit Psalms like Psalm 110, where we're like, well, yeah, I can see how you're interpreting that and how that's not, how that's definitely Jesus ascending to the right hand of God. But all through the Scriptures, symbols, repeated storylines or motifs, imagery, again and again, bringing our attention and preparing us for he who was to come. And here in Acts 2, we see the fulfillment, this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And as the servers for communion come forward and prepare to uh, call us to the table of the Lord, I'd like to ask us, we have to ask ourselves, how is it that we ourselves can be filled with the Holy Spirit? Two weeks ago, um, in, Acts, uh, in Acts 2, in Acts 1, when we started Acts 1, uh, no, yeah, last week in Easter, I said that the way to prepare, to be a people prepared for the presence of the Lord is to have our, our hearts filled with, not my will, but yours be done. We also may be filled and refilled with the Holy Spirit today, and we must be to get through life. As A.W. Tozer says in his short book, which I recommend, what to recommend to you today, How to Be Filled with the Holy Spirit by A.W. Tozer. 
the very first thing we have to do to be ready for the refreshing filling and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which comes in Acts 2 and is repeated to the same disciples. The very first thing to do is to want Him to control us. Amen.